0: Is that green goop in my cat's water dish? Welcome everyone to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with your boy, the coward, Derek me and my movie Monster co-host Aaron in which we watch horror movies discuss fears phobias and cultural relevancy of these movies and just how scary and accessible they are for cowards like myself out there and people like Aaron who just like to gush about horror movies and have no threshold of fear in their lives. Aaron how are you doing?
1: Doing pretty good. I uh, made sure to get my big gulp of a uh, green goop and I shaved down to my Jameson Parker mustache so
0: I'm good to go for yes. this episode and we are not going to spend much longer on us two because you know us. yeah you know us we got a big one we got a special one here not only are we doing a John Carpenter possibly one of his most underrated movies ever Prince of Darkness but we have a guest a guest who means a lot to both Aaron and I we have talked about him a lot in our recommendations in past episodes a lot of his work he is author of quite a lot of horror specifically in the comic book realm just to name off a few Harrow County which is a personal favorite of both Aaron and I's The Unsound which is another one I absolutely adore Bone Parish The Empty Man Cold Spots tons of stuff he has also done work with Marvel and DC has worked on Venom I actually really enjoy his run on Venom specifically he's done work on Uncanny X-Men X-Men Blue he's written Sinestro Lobo Aquaman all for DC. Mr. Colin Bunn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hell
2: yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm happy to be
1: here. Super exciting. Great to have another Southern boy on this podcast. So, (laughs) fun times.
0: And with that, actually, we'll just jump right into it. I actually kickstarted A Passage in Black a couple years ago. I think it was two years ago when that that was up on there. That was a Colin Bunn Presents anthology collection of horror short stories. And you had a bunch of other artists and writers come in and kind of bring a lot of these stories to life through that... That kind of old school black and white horror comic collection feel to it, and I was reading in that forward. You wrote something that specifically came to mind for you was going fishing. You're from South Carolina region, North Carolina, North Come Carolina. Get, it, get that right, yeah. Come on. <laughs>
2: Huge differences. I knew I fucked that up, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, North Carolina. Yeah,
0: and it seems like, especially like even in Harrow County specifically, it seems like a lot of your horror is kind of more geared towards the South in general.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I do a lot of that for sure. I do a lot of sort of what I call backwoods horror. Uh, I mean, I, I branch out of it, but but it's definitely home for me. So yeah. I, I tend to to go back to that quite a bit. All those backwoods horror stories are kind of set in a fusion of North Carolina, where I grew up, and then around the time I was eighteen, I moved to the Missouri Ozarks, right on the Missouri Arkansas border, which was pretty backwoods too. Yeah. So it's really a fusion of those of those places, and it's not just North Carolina. It's a little bit North Carolina, a little bit Missouri. But yeah, I enjoy writing stories in that setting. Like I said, it just feels like home to me. I do a lot of other stuff too, but I will always probably have something going on with that that feel, I imagine. Yeah,
1: there's just something so primal about that rural setting and there is also something about the southern town gothic feel of some kind of menace or evil just always lurking under the surface that's there to be discussed (laughs) and exploited you know so there's so much that you can pull from that setting and there's just such variety as well that you can dig into in so many different stories and legends and lore um, so there's there's a lot of good stuff there to be drawn from for sure. Yeah,
2: I, I miss living in that, that kind of area really. I, I mean, I you know I'm in a <laughs> I'm not in as backwoods of, of an area right now, I, and I miss it. I haven't lived in the in the country, the real country, for a good long while now. So tell us a little bit about your background with horror. What was kind of
1: your gateway entry into horror, whether that was books, movies, other horror comics? um, What kind of horror things burned into your brain as a kid?
2: So, you know, I I used to say, well, I wasn't really into horror when I was a kid, but that's not true when I really think about it. Because I remember living uh, in Newton Grove, North Carolina. We lived in a little farmhouse that has featured into many of my stories over the years. And I remember being fascinated by horror even then. I was obsessed with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and The Headless Horseman. I had a record that I got off the back of a box of cereal. You used to be able to get uh, <laughs> records off the... You could cut them off the back of, of cereal boxes. Yeah. And I had a, a Headless Horseman record that I must have played... A thousand times I mean it, I probably listened <laughs> to that thing on repeat and I was really into that I was really into you know stories of ghosts and werewolves and my older brothers and sisters told me that a little boy drowned in the lake that was behind our house and that was that always terrified me and I remember sneaking into the living room late at night uh, and hiding behind the couch when my older brother and sister were watching like the late late horror show and it was always uh, like a hammer horror movie or something like that. Yeah. So I was really into that that stuff from a very young age. And yeah, I was reading a lot of horror comics, in particular, you know, horror anthology books. The DC stuff like House of Mystery and House of Secrets and Ghosts, for sure, but probably even more than that were the Charlton charlton put out a ton of horror anthologies uh like ghostly manor and stuff like that that were just amazing and i remember vividly reading those comics when i lived in that house in newton grove and that would have been you know when i was in kindergarten so (laughs) what contemporary
1: stuff that you've kind of grown into adulthood with horror sci-fi wise or kind of your biggest
2: work influences there's a ton of novelists and short story writers that have really really uh dug their hooks in If i think of uh writers like joe r lansdale is a huge influence for me yeah he's always been you know such a big inspiration to the point that the first short story i ever sold uh was absolutely a ripoff of a joe r lansdale story (laughs) the magazine folded before they published it and i've told him this story now you know since then i've actually gotten on friendly terms with joe so he's heard all the stories, and he's very uh, good-natured about it. But uh, yeah, Joe Lansdale, Robert McCammon, that yeah. uh, was a huge influence. He probably wrote what I would consider the not just my favorite horror novel, but just my favorite novel, which is Boy's Life. It was just such an amazing book. And then Clive Barker, especially short stories of Clive Barker. Yeah. Thomas Ligotti is a huge influence. So there's a lot of writers from prose really have, uh, I would say, are my biggest, my biggest influences, all the way around. And then if we talk about movies, we're going to talk about directors like Cronenberg and now In particular apropos for tonight John Carpenter are are huge influences as well something that I've noticed too
0: with specifically Cronenberg and Carpenter and kind of just you describing your influences Aaron and I brought this up actually on our last Cronenberg episode where you get a lot of honesty into what that creator is what they're thinking in that time frame when they make that movie and it's like not all good either it shows just a raw complete picture of their headspace going back to the Kickstarter anthology, something I found in your work is a lot of that honesty, especially in regard to the setting in the South. By the way, something I do have to compliment you on before we continue this discussion is with Bone Parish, you did a great job of actually like writing what New Orleans is kind of actually like, and I really appreciate yeah. that because so much fiction gets that wrong. And as someone who was born and raised in New Orleans, that really means a lot to me because as much as I love Gambit, it's kind of like a, that line of just everyone is living in the swamp and riding alligators to work and
2: everything. Well, you know, and look, I'm with you. I love Gambit, and I love that sort of weird, hyper, hyper hyper-reality of New Orleans, but uh, it was important for me, like with Bone Parish, that it felt real. And it's not a realistic New Orleans. I mean, obviously I take a lot of liberties, but I wanted it to feel real to the reader. And it was was doubly important to me. I love New Orleans. I always have. But I had already sold the idea for Bone Parish to the publisher. And uh, I was exchanging emails with the editor and he said, well, where are we setting this? And I was in New Orleans on Halloween. <laughs> and uh, and when he sent that email to me, I said, oh, I know where we're setting it. <laughs> it's going to be set in New Orleans. And that really, once the setting was chosen, the entire series kind of changed and took on a life of its own. So having New Orleans feel right was uh, was pretty important to me
0: yeah yeah and i get that feeling too like uh when i was reading through harrow county even though i'm not as familiar with that kind of area of the south or the country i know enough people and i've spent enough time in those kind of settings where like that also felt authentic i I think that also is a testament as to why we constantly come back to like people like cronenberg and carpenter when we're doing horror movies
2: yeah well yeah i mean and and it's beyond the setting it's it's about uh you know like you said it's an honesty about where they are in their lives at that moment and sometimes it's that are going on in your head are not pretty. Yeah. It's not clean and it's not easy all the time. Yeah. yeah, our most recent Cronenberg was The Brood,
0: and that is Oof. all about his divorce and fight over custody and everything, and, and it's very raw. Yeah, totally. So we promised we wouldn't fanboy out too
1: hard, but there are two things that I do want to specifically discuss real quick. One being Harrow County, which, like Derek mentioned, hugely personal to both of us. That is easily my favorite book that's come out in the past many years. I've got the big library editions of it. I love it. Thank you. That whole idea of the monsters not being the scary thing and the monsters can be your friends and, you know, the real evil kind of lies within humanity so often at the time. Like, so much of that is what I connect with, with a lot of horror media, Nightbreed, Hellboy. It's a lot of the same idea there where, you know, the things that look scary, the things that people tell you are scary are not always what you should fear. And in a lot of times those things are just misunderstood i loved that book any updates on the sci-fi show that was optioned back in 2015 (laughs) and i haven't heard anything of since
2: so i think it's safe to say that the show is not going forward with sci-fi okay you know it went through a, a couple of different pilots very different versions of the story. I wrote the second version of the pilot. So the, the two pilots, you, I mean, they are drastically different takes on Harrow County. Huh. And I, I like the first version just fine. It's just, it's very different from the pilot I wrote. The pilot I wrote is very different from the comic book. And I've ended up, I've posted that pilot on my Patreon account for people in there to read. But, uh, you know, it just, uh, the pr- first pilot didn't catch with them. And I thought it was dead at that point. And they came back and said, we'd like you to write the pilot. It, so I wrote it and I think we got close on making it happen and then it just didn't cross the finish line unfortunately yeah so you know there are things afoot with harrow County right now but they're very uh very new gotcha and nothing that can that can be discussed but yeah it's it's safe to say the sci-fi show just isn't going forward and they're really moving away from a lot of horror stuff and really moving more into full-blown sci-fi so I just you know that's fine that's yeah it. that's their direction remember for a while while sci-fi was all horror yeah stuff. That's, now it's yeah that, that's <laughs> now it's moving away from it that
0: was always one of my gateways into horror growing up as a kid was sci-fi even back in the early 90s was a lot of horror they had a lot
1: of it yeah yeah and i do get the challenges of adapting something like that because not only do you have to deal with the production design challenges of recreating this town yeah and that specific era and that feel it's not something that you can just shoot against a green screen right but then also like the amount of creature effects yeah there's got to be a balance of budget there in terms of okay what do we do practically what do we do visual effects and that's a challenge to consider right and then having the right young people as well as those central characters makes right. a huge difference
2: yeah it was a uh, you know it was interesting because the first pilot that was produced the one i didn't write was set here and now so it was you know 2018 or whatever whenever that was written so it was a very modern take on Harrow County, to the point there were cell phones and stuff like that, which was weird to me all the huh. way around anyway. In the end, it was a good, it was a fine pilot. It just wasn't what they, you know, what they really wanted. And it was, like I said, it was a, it was a, you know, it had quite a bit of a departure from, from the comic. And mine yeah. actually was still not set in the 30s. It was set in 1970s, which I actually really enjoyed writing a version of Harrow County set in the 70s and what that would look like. Yeah. It was actually a lot of fun for me because, you know... I mentioned Newton Grove earlier and I lived there in the 70s so Harrow County was absolutely the place I lived in 1970s I was channeling that you know and and all my brothers are and sisters are at least 10 years older than me so I was using them as my templates for the teenagers and everything <laughs> in that version of the the script. That's awesome.
1: The other one I wanted to mention, which at this point, you're probably sick of talking about, <laughs> is The Empty Man. Yes. And that's one that I read when it came out with you, Vanessa Del Rey, mm-hmm. back in 2014. I was picking that one up as it was coming out. And then, you know, at this past couple of months, just like everybody else, all of a sudden, oh wait, there is this movie that just <laughs>
0: dropped out of nowhere. To the point where you recommended it on like an episode not too long ago and- and even I was just like, wait, what? They adapted it?
2: Yeah,
1: and it was just kind of one of those weird the regime change that happened in 2016 at Fox, and then the Disney acquisition two years later, just everything kind of went sideways with it. Completely different. Much like you just mentioned with Harrow County, the actual adaptation of that to film, same with this one where the Empty Man movie, same concepts, very different story. It's a completely yeah. different set of characters setting everything which was super interesting to me and the movie's pretty solid I I really dug it for it being just kind of like oh here it is and that's one that more and more people are starting to catch on to now anything behind the scenes wise that you can tell us about that because I'm fascinated just the more and more I keep learning about the production history of that movie getting made is intriguing to me and I'm curious how much of a separation was there between you and that project in terms of like the creative flow of it.
2: The Empty Man was the first thing I ever, well I take it back, it was the second thing I I had optioned. It was very early in my career really and in the grand scheme of things and I probably would have done things differently if it were today. They kept me in the loop. I mean I I saw every version of the script, I saw every cut of the film and there were several cuts of that film Hmm. that didn't go out. But I didn't necessarily, and, and I was—I gave my feedback on all of it, but I don't feel, a, I don't know that I had a huge voice in it. I mean, it was, you know, it was, sure. that train was rolling with or without me. They kept me involved, but definitely I wasn't, a, I didn't necessarily have an active hand in it, I would say. Gotcha. The things I do, I'm working on now, I absolutely am taking a much more active hand. Now, that said, I'm not sure if I had had an active hand, the movie would have turned out one bit different. It might have been the exact same. That wasn't a complaint on the movie at all. You know, it's, it's interesting because it is so, it is a, a big departure from the comic. And I remember when I first read the first draft of the screenplay, I said, you know, I kind of feel like this is taking place in the world of the comic, but it's in another city. It's another yeah. corner of the world. With that in mind, I was comfortable with it because I do feel like the mood of the movie is is appropriate to the comic. It feels like I would have wanted it to feel. Yeah, but it's obviously, it's a very different movie. I think, or very, the movie's different from the comic. I've always felt like it's okay that there are differences. Yeah. Honestly, I wouldn't have wanted the movie to be a shot-by-shot remake of the comic. Totally. I like the movie to be something different. Once you've read the comic, you can enjoy the movie and still be surprised by it. You've watched the movie, you can still read the comic and get something different. And that's actually, for me, I think is more interesting. But yeah, it it was an interesting process. I'm surprised the movie ever got released. Up until even a few months before it was released in theaters, I remember us saying, you know, this movie just gonna it's done it's gonna sit on a shelf and we'll never see it you know it's never going to happen and then you know boom it drops in the theaters at the worst possible time for a movie to come out in theaters and then you know now it you know it's on it's streaming and the producers and i were talking about it right before it launched in theaters and we knew it wasn't going to be a big success in theaters it just it was impossible because of the the state of the world yeah yeah and we also knew that the movie had potential to be sort of a cult to gather a cult following and uh, and i think that. It's it's on its way to doing that, uh, especially in the. It's weird. The last maybe two three weeks, i have getting a lot of people talking about it and asking me about it. Uh, a lot of people watching it and commenting on it. It's definitely a movie I think that will get a big cult following, and I think it'll be around for years to come. It's not the movie that the previews make it look to be. You know, the previews kind of give it sort of a urban legend kind of vibe. Yeah. I'm not sure they were the right previews for the movie. It was selling a very different <laughs> product yeah. than. And what you yeah. think you were getting.
1: I was not expecting an opening 25 minute prologue scene with very little dialogue.
2: That was crazy. Yeah.
1: Not at all what I was expecting. And I, I do think that, especially as it gets onto the like mainstream yeah. streaming sites, it's just going to continue to kind of grow in its cult status and it's just going to keep driving people back to the book.
2: Yeah. I hope that it'll drive people to the books because, you know, there are three trade paperbacks out there now yeah. for The Empty Man and they are very different. You know, and it's interesting, Disney had me put together like a six-page comic to preview the movie. So there is a there's a comic online that is sort of takes place right before the movie. And I took that idea that it was just something happening in a corner of the comic book universe and I kind of added that into the comic. So you see some of the characters from the comic in this preview, this six-page <laughs> preview of the the Empty Man movie.
0: It's kind of funny about you mentioned that with the preview because something that both Aaron and I even said when you were giving that recommendation, Aaron, about the Empty Man movie, you know, several episodes ago, we were both trying to explain to our audience, especially ones who don't really read comics. It's not what you think. It's not Slender Man. It is something that's completely different. It's not what on the surface it may sound like it is. And it definitely rewards the hungry audience, I should say.
2: Yeah, it was tough because Bye Bye Man came out right around the time that was originally planned for Empty Man to come out
0: that's probably for the best that they
1: didn't come out at the same time then <laughs> oh yeah
2: for sure but there was talk even let's change the movie title and I think it was going to be called Manifestation 12 or something like that it was is something from the movie I didn't like that at all <laughs> because a great movie can be a wonderful advertisement for my comic book. You know, I I wanted people that watched the movie to go back and read the comics, and I was afraid if they changed the title, it wouldn't reflect back to the comic at all. Yeah. So I'm glad that it ended up coming out as Empty Man. I'm glad it came out. And yeah, I mean, minutes before we started this recording, another creator sent me a text message saying, I just watched The Empty Man, and I really want to talk to you and get your opinions on it. So I'm getting a <laughs> lot... I mean, people are watching it. But like I said, it's the cut that got released probably wasn't my favorite cut of the movie. There's another cut of the movie I think is better. But everything I saw up until the actual release was without the score. Yeah. And the Christopher Young score on it was really set it... It's you good. Know, I mean, yeah. first of all, having Christopher Young do a score for a movie based on one of my comics was sort of a you know that was me geeking out a little bit yeah they call me and said so we got this guy christopher young <laughs> the guy who did hellraiser oh you mean, christopher young? you mean hellraiser christopher young i was like yeah i know christopher young thank yeah. you yeah you know and i have several 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 scores by him within you know easy reach So that was exciting for me. And I really think the score just did so much for that movie. It really elevated it in some amazing ways. Awesome.
1: Last question, and then we'll kind of move on to some recommendations. Of everything that you've written so far, what is something that you would like to see adapted into some other format?
2: (laughs) All of it. All of it. You know, there's so many things that I think would make interesting uh, TV or movies. Obviously, Harrow County. The sixth gun we got really close with, uh, and I'd like to see the sixth something happen with the sixth gun. I would love to see that as like a
1: Netflix show. Yeah, or something, I was something just something about to serialize it, not just like
2: a one-off movie. Yeah. I think a series would be the way to go on it. But my book Regression that I did with Image I think could make a really interesting TV series. Uh, and you mentioned Bone Parish. I think Bone Parish is ripe. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for that, and then I did a book called Dark Ark for Aftershock, uh, which is if you're not familiar with it, we all know the story of Noah's Ark. Dark Ark is the story of the second Ark, the one that is full of all the monsters. <laughs> so it's a, an Ark at sea full of vampires and werewolves and Hell yeah. And, you know, everything that goes bump in the night.
0: My favorite part of Dark Ark was that you included two unicorns as well.
2: Everybody loves those unicorns. <laughs> so you
0: have like this demons and vampires, and then there are these two pure unicorns in the middle being like, why the fuck are we on the Dark Ark? They got on the wrong <laughs> arc.
2: But yeah, I think that would make it a really cool adult animated series. But yeah, I, you know, look, I can see it for everything I work on. I can see something. Even the stuff that is really not adaptable. I'm like, ah, I could see that. Yeah yeah
1: totally and and you pick such great artists to work with that flesh all of the words out in a way that's just it's always cinematic that's one of the things i enjoy i'm i'm not as big of a comic reader as Derek is and i am way pickier because artwork is important to me and if i don't jive with the artwork of something it's just hard for me to get into it and that's something else i
2: can say is you have worked with some killer artists to bring your stories to life i've been very lucky over over my career i've worked with a a lot of really great, very talented people.
0: Yeah, going back to just adaptations, my own personal favorite that I would love to see adapted of your work is actually The Unsound. That one would work, I think, more as a movie, because I think it, that was only, what, five or six issues?
2: Yeah, so The Unsound is actually in, I guess, I guess it would be pre-production. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. With Netflix. Yeah, Netflix uh, yeah. is uh, has been more, I mean, obviously the pandemic kind of slowed everything down Yeah. <laughs> to, to a crawl but yeah David David Sandberg who did really? uh, the Shazam movie yeah, is uh, is involved with the Unsound for Netflix. Oh, hell right. yeah.
1: Okay, I'm going to keep an eye out on this. Knowing his tone and vibe from
2: Lights Out, I'm down. Yeah, Lights Out and Annabelle. Yeah. I guess he did Creation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, But yeah, so he's working on the Unsound, so I don't know what the timing of that is. Like I said, I, I, I would have had a better feeling about what the timing was before uh, the pandemic kind of shut everything down for a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but that's good to know. (laughs) I'll, I'll keep an eye out on that one. Hell yeah. All right, well, uh,
1: let's quickly kind of move into some recommendations. I am curious to know what, Cullen, you have been eating lately as far as horror media goes. <laughs> Do you have anything that you want to throw out uh, as recommendations to the audience?
2: So I feel like I have been reading a lot of <laughs> of old stuff lately. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a few months behind. I feel like you guys are all going to have talked about these things, anything I talk about. But have you guys read, and I don't know how many of these have you guys read, these novels right now or talk about novels but I'm going to anyway Have you guys read Clown in a Cornfield? No, I haven't. (laughs) No, but that sounds pretty great. Yeah, so Adam Cesar wrote a novel. It's a teen book, but don't let that scare you off because I got it and I was like, I'll let my son read it. And He said, you better read it first before you you let let your (laughs) son read it. I mean, just from the title, obviously. Clown in a Cornfield.
0: Yeah, and the cover art is great too.
2: What a great title for a book, and it's a slasher book. I would suggest, honestly... If it were me, I'd say hold off, read it back when fall comes around again, but it's such a good novel. It's for younger readers, but don't let that scare you off because it's pretty awesome. I would 100% recommend that to anybody. Oh God, the tagline on this, the kids are not alright, is great. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And then uh, I have been watching a few things on streaming, uh, movie-wise. I guess you guys have probably talked about Slacks, right? Off air. I have
1: that in my queue on shutter right now we have talked about that like alph recording yeah it's
2: ridiculous yeah (laughs) i love the premise yeah it's it's the most ridiculous thing but it's definitely worth worth checking out Awesome, yeah, you you were thinking you were going to bring up
1: old stuff, and both of those are, like, new to me, so I'm definitely going to go check those out.
2: Well, I mean, I feel like I'm always a few, you know, I watch movies when they come out, you know, if it's something that I've heard of, like, obviously, Psycho Gorman. Yes, so fucking good. If you haven't watched Psycho Gorman, that that movie's awesome. It's like a Power Rangers if Power Rangers were starring Guar. Yeah. And I think it's it's awesome. I really want to
1: rewatch that soon with my wife, and I have the Hunky Boy edition <laughs> from Canada pre-ordered, and I'm waiting on that to arrive to watch that one again.
0: Is that really the name of it? The Hunky yes. Boy yes. Edition? Yeah. That's fucking great.
1: I love that. They had like a fan channel Canadian exclusive version that is called the Hunky Boy Edition that comes with the soundtrack and like a whole second disc of special. Special features and different packaging and stuff, so I'm pumped to get that one. Hell yes.
2: Oh, I've got something brand new. Brand new, and it's not necessarily horror, but I think horror fans will get a kick out of it. And that's the Invincible cartoon on Amazon Prime. Yeah.
0: Heard good things. Yeah, yeah. I've heard great things about it.
2: It's freaking awesome. And I watched it with my son and the expression on his face in the last five minutes of that first episode. And I was like, uh oh, I might have gotten him into a show I shouldn't have got him gotten him into. <laughs> it's animated, but it is so good. And if you like superheroes at all, it's it's fun for that. Especially if you're looking at an ultra-violent, you know... Just imagine how really violent the world of superheroes would be. Yeah. And that's what Invincible does really well.
1: Yeah, if a character as strong as Superman could actually punch your face in, it yeah. would be catastrophic. So, yeah, that's that's <laughs> basically the idea of the show. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that one. The animation looked pretty solid, and uh, I enjoyed that book, so I'm, I'm curious to check it out.
2: See, I never read the comics. That's a comic I never read. So, going into the show, I was completely unaware of what it was about, even. I just thought we were looking for a show to watch, and I said, well, let's try this. And, you know, there we go. It was great. Hell
1: yeah. Derek, have you got any recommendations?
2: Yeah, so real quick, I kind of just,
0: for the hell of it, was just trying to decide earlier this week, if I had to pick Gun to Head, the scariest horror video games I could think of. Not necessarily the best, but just the scariest. And this thought became such a, like, prevailing thing that I decided I wanted to bring it up on this under the recommendations. One of them is one that is very hard to come by, another is sorta of hard to come by, and the other is pretty much readily available. That seems to be the case with a lot of horror games you talk yes. about. They're either completely you can go buy them at Best Buy for 20 bucks, or they're like off the wall rare, like rare you cuts, have to get it off yeah.
1: eBay from Japan and three hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the first one I'm gonna talk about is PT. And uh PT, there's an infamous history associated with PT. PT is initialized for playable teaser, and it was actually a playable teaser for the now defunct Silent Hills project, which was the Del Toro project that was actually going to star Norman Reedus that Kojima was working on, but then Konami acted a fool, and it's now in the trash. Overnight cult status in the video game world, especially with horror video games. Well, this one's also
1: infamous, too, because it's one that they had available for a week, and they pulled it, so the only way that you can play it now is if you had it preloaded on your system.
0: And it only on PS4, really. I heard about this. Which is the only reason why like peek behind the curtain i was lucky enough to get my hands on a ps5 but i am keeping my ps4 just because it has pt on it and there's no other way to have it or play it at the moment so i highly suggest to anyone who is like interested and this is even a suggestion for horror fans that don't really play video games just go watch a playthrough on youtube of pt it is fucking scary basically a walking simulator in which you are walking down a hallway of a house from one door to the next and as you do certain things and certain things happen a ton of psychological dread and horror it's like walking through a reoccurring nightmare and you're being (laughs) haunted at the same time minor spoilers for scares in the game at one point you like enter the side bathroom in this hallway and there's a fetus monster crying in the sink and you have to like look at it for a certain amount of time and once you do like there's There's actually these little light puzzle elements throughout this trailer. And and once you do enough of these really weird puzzles, you get (laughs) the actual trailer for Silent Hills. It's really clever, but it's so fucking terrifying. Without PT, Resident Evil 7 wouldn't have been first person. It wouldn't have been like Return to Basics with horror and then also made it the first person. Like it's inspired this whole new slew of horror video games that are all now in first person because of it. So I'd start there. That's my number three on my list. Number two, this one is one that's pretty readily available. You could probably get for relatively cheap. It came out on PS4, Xbox One, 360, PS3. It's even on Switch now, I think, for Nintendo. And it's one that I've been trying to get you to fucking play, Aaron, for like years now, is Alien Isolation. Yeah, yeah, if I had the time. Man,
2: that game, that freaking game, jeez, it's hard for me to play. Mm-hmm. Oh, It is scary as hell. Oh, yeah. That was probably the first horror video game I've played in a long, long time. I swear I had to turn it off at times I was like I just can't do this I'm sitting down here in the basement by myself and this damn video game is terrifying
0: yeah (laughs) yeah it just kind of a basic rundown of it it follows Amanda Ripley actually Ellen Ripley's daughter who is just hinted at in the Alien franchise when she wakes up from her cryogenic sleep and her daughter lived a full life and passed away well it tells a story of what her daughter was doing and her daughter actually is looking for her and she's approached by someone saying like we have a recording from your mom so so it goes from there and then of course this colony or wherever she's at it's been a couple of years since I played it so bear with me I don't remember the story specifics but this colony you go to of course the same thing that happened in the first alien movie a xenomorph starts fucking things up eventually like the androids all get turned into kill mode but what makes this game so terrifying again it's first person it makes the xenomorph back into an unstoppable killing machine instead of cannon fodder which I love aliens the second alien movie yeah, a
1: lot it's a different vibe entirely. It really
0: turned the xenomorphs into like cannon fodder basically. And you don't see that alien for hours into that game.
2: it's awful (laughs) I mean in the best way that game stressed me out so bad it was great but I was very stressed playing it
0: the reveal
2: of the alien
0: the first time you play it it's like in this section where you're like in a medical area and you have to go like deep down into the like medical area and you encounter the alien appearing at the beginning and you're like fuck I have to do this with this thing stalking me and the AI is incredibly advanced for at least its time when when the game first dropped because it wasn't early in the PS4 Xbox One life cycle when it dropped. But, you know, if you are, like, extremely cowardly like myself, they do have easier settings that they did patch into the game that make it a lot less stressful, and the alien isn't as Deadly or like smart? It's a teddy bear. It's not an alien. It's just a teddy bear following you around. Basically, but yeah, wanting to hug you. (laughs) That'd be my number two game. My number one game, which I would even like go as far, and I think there were even critics who said this. I would call it the Exorcist of video games. It's one that you can get still. You can find usually at retro video game shops on eBay for like anywhere from sixty bucks or higher. Still holds its price, its value. Is Fatal Frame Two Crimson Butterfly? I
1: had a feeling that that's the one you were gonna throw out yeah
0: so the Fatal Frame series the premise is you're in a Japanese setting of some kind and you're usually playing as a Japanese girl like a very innocent character is the best way to describe it and you're thrust into these situations where like you're in a and and Fatal Frame 2 you're in a haunted village and you can't escape it's a cursed village all the people who lived in this village are now like murderous ghosts trying to kill you and make you part of the curse basically but the whole thing around the Fatal Frame series is you use use a camera to exercise spirits. Fatal Frame 2 is just the perfect parts of this entire franchise. I played all of them except for Fatal Frame 4 which was only in Japan, but I played 1 through 3 and the 5th one which came out on Wii U. Regardless of 3 and 5 being more modern, the second one still is by far the scariest one to me. It is very much if The Ring, The Grudge, that type of like horror gets you like this game is dripping in it. Common enemies are basically the girl from the ring attacking you everywhere. But uh just the design- Design of the ghost, even for the PS2 and the original Xbox, all fucking terrifying. There was a broken neck lady ghost in this way before there was one in (laughs) The Haunting of Hill House, and she's just as terrifying. So, yes if you're looking for some games to either stream or like watch people stream or you want to play yourself i would go with those three if you are really wanting to scare the shit out of yourselves one last quick recommendation just because we are doing john carpenter i threw on his lost themes three alive after death it's good shit which came out back in february of this year it is great all his lost themes one through three are exactly what the title says they are basically like tracks that you could pull out of any john carpenter movie and they would work a lot of them are very horror related, very synthwave heavy, dark synth. Like Lost Themes three specifically because there's a lot of set piece type of things. Like it gets slow and somber, and then it turns into like fucking graveyard jams. Yeah. Um At certain points, it has peaks and valleys. And once again, he collaborates on this one with his son Cody Carpenter and his godson Daniel Davies. And I think they also joined him on Lost Themes one and two as well. Yeah. It sounds like you've listened to this, Aaron.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I listened to it as soon as it came out. And I will say, you and I are both lucky. We have been to a lot of concerts together. We have seen a lot of bucket list bands that we never thought we'd be able to see. If life gets back to normal, I really, really hope that he goes on a tour again for this new album, and if he comes within, I don't know, fuck it, seven, ten hours of me, I might have to uh, burn some vacation time and go do that. There's no excuse for me not to at this point. I would love to see John Carpenter live. Yeah. So if he comes anywhere near, I gotta try to do that.
2: I listen to... To the Lost Themes. I listen to a lot of John Carpenter in general when I'm working, but I do listen to Lost Themes a lot when I'm working. And and like you, I've never seen him in, in concert. And right before the pandemic hit, you know, I was probably checking once a week on his website just to make sure he hadn't announced any new yeah. dates. Yeah. Because I, I'll fly at this point, and I don't want to ever fly again. But I'll probably fly if he does another concert just to go see that show. And I don't like concerts. But that that's one I've got it. That's one I've got to go see. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm gonna go out of my way to try to do it if he does go on tour sometime in this next year, and things maybe kind of get back to normal, and venues are starting to have shows again. For sure. So yeah, that's definitely, definitely on the listen. Definitely an album that somebody should check out.
2: I'll see you guys there.
1: Hell yeah! I think all three of us want to do that. Cool. I've got a couple of recommendations. I have been going back on my commute, so I've been burning through a lot of audiobooks, uh, mostly stuff that I probably have mentioned on the show before, like Paul Tremblay's Cabin at the End of the World. So good. I love the Terror by Dan Simmons. So I am checking out Carrion Comfort right now. I'm in the middle of that one. Ah. Uh,
2: Oh, that's such a great book.
1: Yeah, I will let y'all know it's my so thoughts good. once I'm done. I don't want to talk about anything yet, but I'm, I'm digging it so far. The Terror was also kind of a slow build for me into something that I really, really liked by the end. And this is kind of the same. So I'm
2: digging it so far, but I'll talk about that more once it's done. Carry and Comfort has some of the... To me, it has some really, really terrifying moments in it. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great
1: book. I love it. As far as TV movie stuff goes, I finished... 30 coins on HBO nice. which dear lord I should have known the first few episodes are kind of tame and have some wild Alex de la Iglesia moments but knowing how fucking banana pants Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango are I should have known like where this show was going to end up because the finale of it went full fucking insano the evil has won kind of thing by the end of the season I mean obviously like it sets up a next season, and it doesn't quite fully end everything, but uh, definitely, definitely amazing by the end of it. It's only eight episodes total. I think I mentioned it right when I started watching the show several episodes back, but for people who hadn't heard that, it is a Spanish-language show on HBO Max. It's an HBO Europe show by Alex Dilla Iglesia, who has done a ton of fucking bananas horror and genre movies. Day of the Beast that I just mentioned, and Dida Durango just got amazing 4K releases from Severin that I just got in and I'm excited to watch those again because those are both insane. This is a show where there is a Spanish village. The show is set in Spain. Spanish. Weird shit starts happening and they can't quite figure out why. And There is a new priest in town, but this is mean ass, boxes covered in tattoos, has a Punisher rack of guns with silver bullets kind of <laughs> Turns out, one of the 30 coins, the silver coins that Judas Iscariot was paid to betray Jesus, so these cursed ass coins, like one of them has made it to this town, and there is a whole secretive Illuminati anti-Catholic church subgroup that is like, okay, well if here is like God's official Catholic church, whatever, well here is the exact opposite anti-God, you can't have good without evil, so both have to coexist kind of thing and they are trying to track down all 30 of these silver coins for dot 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 reasons. It's bananas. The only complaint I really have about it now that I've seen the entire first season is one of the leads. There is the main male lead who is kind of the like mayor of this town. He's your like good looking guy. He is just such a moron through the entire show that it's kind of aggravating (laughs) and you're constantly just like, dude, give up on this move on don't do this like he's kind of aggravating otherwise all the other characters are really solid
0: but is it the horror trope of the idiot making bad decisions a
1: little bit but i don't think that the show like punishes him enough for his oh. idiocy the the <laughs> townspeople in this village go through some shit in this show like they are constantly like oh no everybody is entranced by this crazy fog and we burned a building down oh no we all woke up and you know we're possessed by whatever
0: yeah quick aside that trope always gets me in like sh- a show like supernatural where like this thing encounters just this random person out of nowhere they're killed in five seconds flat Sam and Dean the hunters quote-unquote literally like bungle their way into this thing's nest and it doesn't fucking murder them like in five seconds like it did in the beginning. Yeah. Um, And they're able to fight back just through sheer luck half the time. Yeah, that's always like an interesting trope.
1: And I was digging the show from the beginning when it was still kind of like monster or situation of the week. Right. But then all of that starts to tie into this larger story and where it goes is just full on bananas. I can't believe they did this by the end of it. And I'm also really shocked for an hbo show how much practical effects were used in this like there are some giant fucking monster lovecraftian flesh beetle giant dinosaur with half of a man hanging off of it kind of monsters and they did it practically. There's bananas shit in that show, but I, I loved it. The premise is great. Every episode you're going to have a what-the-fuck moment. Fantastic. I'm excited. I hope that they carry that on for a second season, Um, and it definitely made me want to check out his two new movies, or his two movies that just came out under Sever, and I want to rewatch those again. Last thing I'll mention, new movie, and I purposely watched this for this episode because I think it kind of thematically ties in a little bit, is a movie called come true, which I'm not sure when it came out. It just hit streaming this year, but I've also read that it came out last year and then there's also a 2019 stamp at the end of the credits, so I don't know like what on that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this off-air and I looked up stuff on it and it was like initial release date, it was like August 2020, but then it didn't drop streaming in like March. It might have done some festivals in 2019, Yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking, but yeah.
1: this was written, directed, and shot by Anthony Scott Burns who also did Our House stars Julia Sarah Stone. It is a young woman who is kind of run away from her parents, not living with her parents bad home situation, something. You don't really find out. She is just kind of bouncing from spot to spot every night sleeping with friends and like literally sleeping in the park in some cases. She finds out about a sleep study and she initially just kind of thinks, okay, well that's a place I can just go crash then it becomes this larger thing of they are doing an actual experiment and they are looking for something and this group of college age kids and kind of their older professor are looking for something the only hint i will give you is sleep paralysis is something that we have definitely talked about on our show and kind of some of the shadow people right creepy shit that that involves right it's A gorgeous movie... The camera work is great. The soundtrack is amazing. It's like Electric Youth and Pilot Priest, so it has a very synthy kind of sound to it. The performances are amazing. This main actress, Julia Sarah Stone, I have not seen her in anything before, but she was fantastic. But there's a weird kind of Cronenbergian element to it where not only are they like doing this sleep study where they put her in this crazy suit and crazy headpiece thing, but then they are Recording these very lo fi, grainy, digital VHS like images of what she's seeing while she's dreaming. And then they had these like printout, almost like Polaroids, and these very kind of lo fi images of what she dreamed and then there are these fucking really super evocative dream montage moments that happen throughout the movie where the camera is just zooming forward and you're like going down a hallway and there's doors opening and then it goes through like a mountain tunnel and there's bodies hanging from the ceiling and it's just all this really dark evocative imagery and all of that, it just like accelerates and accelerates and kind of all comes to this conclusion eventually the very very last moment of this movie like left me a little raising my eyebrow on how I felt about it but I was messaging you Derek while I was watching it and just the entire time like this has got me I'm in this is like if early Tony Scott and Cronenberg fucked while early Michael Mann filmed and directed the whole thing like it just has that kind <laughs> yeah. of vibe to it
0: and it would make a great triple feature with It Follows and Possessor. It, it kind of even sounded a little bit like Inception mixed with the creepypasta Russian. And sleep experiment a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But yeah, I, I dug the
1: shit out of this movie. And this is one that I think the ending, the very, very ending of it is gonna like really throw some people. But I think for what the movie sets up and where the movie is going from the beginning, I think it works for me. At least the other 99.9% of the movie does work for me. So I'm very curious to keep an eye on this director and keep an eye on the stars. You liked our house, didn't you? I've heard... Some good stuff about R.S. No, I have not watched that yet. That's on my list of stuff to get around to, and has probably bumped up a little bit now that I've seen this movie. But yeah, I, I really, really dug it. That is streaming on all the Primo places right now. Like I, I rented it on Amazon because I had some Amazon digital credit, but you can get that there, iTunes. It'll drop on all the main streaming. Otherwise, probably pretty soon. No physical in, in the works, at least from what I could tell. There was no like Blu-ray pre-order of it up anywhere, so maybe that'll come with time. So yeah, that's what I would throw out for this week. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started talking about our movie, which, yeah, we're doing John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, 1987, like we mentioned.
2: Anyone in close proximity has the same dream. What is it? A
0: secret that can no longer be kept. It started a month ago. What started? A change in the Earth and the sky His power. There's a weird locking mechanism. Looks like it can only be open from the inside.
1: A life form is growing out of prebiotic
2: fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. It's becoming something. What? Uh.
0: Yeah, with Prince of Darkness, y'all. I mean, I had an idea of where it was going to go, but I wasn't ready with how much weird science and quantum physics and stuff Carpenter was interested in going into this movie. Oh, yeah. So I guess peek behind the curtain as we
1: start talking about this movie. We were discussing stuff to possibly cover with Cullen because he was generous enough to give us time to do a full episode. And so we threw out some suggestions um, and we kind of narrowed it down to this and Near Dark, which I feel are kind of good things that are kind of on the same wavelength as his work. You know, one being kind of more cosmic horror, the other being a little more gothic, rural, southern fried kind of horror. And it literally just came down to this movie because Near Dark is not fucking available right now. (laughs) I would hate to do that episode and then nobody can watch it because it's not on streaming. You can't buy it. It is not on iTunes. It's just, it's nowhere.
2: And let's face it, that's a crime.
1: It is. Yes. My wife and I were just discussing that recently because some of catherine bigelow's stuff like strange days is also wrapped up with that chunk of cameron related stuff that he's not putting out right now so who knows cross our fingers maybe uh we'll get a nice blu-ray of near dark from one of these boutique labels in the future and we can have colin back
0: yeah and if it was more available i'd say we probably would have done that because we've done a bit of carpenter now like this is what our fourth carpenter movie i mean there is a reason why we constantly come back to carpenter he's a master of horror but we're always trying to find new, different corners, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since we started the show, this is one of those ones that has been always on my list. I knew just a little bit about it, might have caught a scene or two of it back in the day, but I was looking forward to doing, and it did not disappoint. I really enjoyed this. Colin. is this something that you have seen previous to this?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you were to cast your mind back to high school age... Cullen, walking into, not a blockbuster, because where I lived, we didn't have yep. a blockbuster at the time, but we had a video store, ABC Video, which was nestled in between the Winn-Dixie and the Eckerd Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Yep. And uh, I vividly, vividly remember walking into the video store. There was a girl that worked there that I went to high school with. She was a couple of grades higher than me. And she said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm looking for a horror movie, I think, tonight. And she's like, I've got the one for you. And she hands me Prince of Darkness. And I went into seeing Prince of Darkness, and I don't know how I managed to see it without without knowing anything about it. I had not seen a preview. I had not read about it in Fangoria, which I find hard to believe, but I hadn't. So I went into the movie completely oblivious to anything about it which I think is kind of an awesome way to watch that movie <laughs> yeah
0: going into it with as little prep as I or knowledge of it as I had it again I was just not at all prepared for like the antimatter stuff and like science being kind of like this weird juxtaposition with religion <laughs> and just how many like elements this movie juggles at the same time even to those like weird dreamlike recordings that they're getting in their subconscious speaking of Cronenberg that feels like a Cronenberg thing and to see it in a carpenter was pretty fun
1: yeah and on all top of all of that you still have a very slasher element kind of in the latter third of the movie
0: you even have a zombie element
1: yeah it's just totally a little bit of everything yeah. i also bumped into this one in very early high school i've mentioned on the show there was a junk shop that my brothers and i would go kick around in and talk with the owner because he was just kind of an older dude who was definitely selling a lot of you could tell his items like his movies and his records
0: I love the South (laughs) just a junk shop where you discovered Prince of Darkness that's great (laughs) totally yeah
1: (laughs) so we would just go down and shoot the shit with this guy because you know we could talk music with him we could talk movies with him and he was just kind of thankful to have anybody talking with him you know let alone like a bunch of kids but he had just a wall of VHS tapes and I would occasionally go and like snag a couple Pay him a few bucks, maybe like trade some back to him if I didn't really like him. And he was just cool, like, take this, whatever. But Prince of Darkness was one that I saw it. I saw that John Carpenter font, and I knew, like, okay, this has John Carpenter's name above the title. This has got to be some good shit. And I just had never heard of it. And reading the back of the box and just being like, what is. Is this the devil is in a canister of goop under a church, and all these scientists are about to go study it? What is this movie?
0: A church in lo- like downtown Los Angeles, too, yeah. which is great. So, I
1: was just enamored by what is this, and taking that home, watching it, and it instantly kind of imprinting on me in a way. I had seen all of his big stuff by this point. You know, I, I grew up watching Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York. My mom. Of the fog, so we watched that one a lot. But this one, it was just one that was totally off my radar. And it's one of my personal favorite Carpenters. And like we mentioned, I think it's maybe his most underrated movie, aside from like In the Mouth of Madness, which both of them are thankfully coming around. Probably some of that Shout Factory, such a big high profile, hey, we have this movie now.
0: You know, people are revisiting it. It's funny you mention that one as well, because this and that are the last. Two in the Apocalypse Trilogy. Yeah. The Thing, which is a huge yeah. movie, especially in the horror community, is the first of this. So it's interesting that that trilogy is made up of The Thing, this, and, and The Mouth of Madness. Yeah. I thought about that kind of after watching this. What does that mean exactly as the Apocalypse Trilogy? For this one specifically, and I'm not going to jump too far ahead because I don't want to spoil this right off the bat, but like the nature of the ending in this movie is one of those open-ended endings that I think should be like taught in class on how to write an open-ended ending because it's bittersweet but it's like bittersweet without having to, I don't know, like leave a hook for a sequel, I guess. This feels like it ended and doesn't need a sequel but it still left it open-ended to where like, well, is evil going to win?
1: And yet, you know, and I feel this way about most of Carpenter's movies where, you know, other than Halloween, we didn't really get sequels. You know, it's one of the movies that I want to see a follow-up to the most because <laughs> yeah, where, where things go ultimately, like I need to know what happened Yeah, you know more of the story and some of the things that it teases keep them wanting more. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So a little bit of background: this was Carpenter. You know, we've talked about Carpenter. We've already discussed his whole background and everything else. Hey, Donald Pleasance is back, and we
0: have Alice Cooper in this movie.
1: Yeah, and some other people from some of his other projects are in this one as well too. That's one thing I love about Carpenter is just him bringing back a lot of the same people. This was his first movie for Alive Pictures. He was given a relatively small budget of only three million dollars but the trade-off was total creative control and we like we've discussed many times his studio movies often got fucked with in ways that he did not like and he was often kind of on the short end of what he could end up doing all sudden done and had to make some creative compromises to get the things out so this was a chance to like make this movie as he saw fit however he wanted just working in a smaller budget the executive producer and founder of Alive Pictures Shep Gordon Who he's a whole wild, interesting dude in and of himself. He owned the record label that Alice Cooper was on, and he was Alice Cooper's manager, which is part of the reason why he's in this movie. They even like did the tie-in song "Prince of Darkness." He's also like part of the reason why we have celebrity chefs and chef TV shows. Like he's such a wild dude. But this is the guy that's you know working with Carpenter to make this movie. And Carpenter at the time was interested in theoretical physics, and atomic theory, and all. All this wild shit that he was reading for some reason at this point in his career. <laughs> and that notion of, like, some ultimate evil that manifests through, like, hard molecular science and being conflated with religion. All of that part of it is just super fascinating to me. And I am not at all an ancient aliens guy, like, whatsoever. But just the whole, like, God was an alien. Jesus was an alien. There was, like, an ancient ancient evil actual physical satan it's not like a they discuss in the movie donald pleasant says like we have taken this to be like the evil within man and this you know spiritual metaphorical thing like no there's an actual being an anti-god and his son satan that he put in a can of goop and buried in the desert seven million years ago
0: (laughs) it's it's bananas it's completely bananas it it kind of going juxtaposed to that that was uh, honestly part of the one of the reasons why aaron specifically you had this on the short list for you, Colin. This feels like a lot of where your stories actually kind of wind up at of just taking this idea and you think it's going one route and then it just cold cocks you out of nowhere in a good way and blindsides you. And it's like these fascinating ideas on what you can do with the traditional tropes of horror and twisting them into like new and interesting, exciting ways.
2: It's a movie that uh, it plays in so many different subgenres of horror. And it has so many different Ideas. I mean, it's just, this This movie is just so full of ideas and things that are going on in it. You mentioned that, you know, you're not uh, into the science necessarily of it all. And I think that helps it. I love when they start throwing up these ideas and, you know, he's talking about reality breaking down on a subatomic level. Yeah. And all that mumbo jumbo. I love it. And I'm glad I don't understand it anymore <laughs> because I think yeah, it makes yeah. the movie better. I
0: 100% agree with you.
2: It almost feels like weird world building. Yeah. Right, I mean, it, it has this weird world-building vibe. It, it, it adds so much to it. And it's interesting because, you know, I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. I knew it was part of the Apocalypse Trilogy. But I'll tell you what I didn't know until I, or I didn't, I think I'm maybe I knew it, and my memory has lost this bit, until this recent rewatch. I did not know that it was written under a pen name. And when I saw that this time, I was like, that can't be a real name. I said, first of all, I know Carpenter wrote that, but it's obvious that this is inspired by the the Quatermass movies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
2: the Quatermass movies, when I think back on like, you know, I said when I was in Newton Grove, I was in kindergarten. I remember watching one of the Quatermass movies before I moved to Newton Grove. So this was pre-kindergarten. And I remember it terrifying me. And it was <laughs> such a slow build. I mean, I remember one moment from that movie. And I didn't realize, I didn't know what movie it was until years and years later. But it's absolutely inspired by i mean it, well i mean the college is named after the writer of the quatermass stories and then of course it's written under the the pen name of quatermass i love those kind of science meets faith type of movie science yeah. meets uh, the supernatural i mean they made no question about this is a movie about science meeting faith yeah because that's the whole point of the movie but i guess i just didn't remember that it was written under that name until this recent rewatch of it yeah
1: totally and that whole nigel neal influence definitely is kind of bleeding throughout the entire movie two of the teleplays that he specifically says inspired this was the road which has to do with receiving transmissions from the future and then also from the past and all that back and forth liminal time bleed kind of thing and then the stone tape Which I watched that two days ago. So, the Stone Tape is a teleplay that was written and produced for the BBC as one of their Christmas ghost stories in 1972. It is about a team of scientists from this electronics company who move into this giant Victorian mansion that is built on the foundations of, like, a Saxon stronghold. And there is kind of part of this mansion that's still an old castle, like, stone wall kind of thing. One of the members of the team, like, can pick up on that residual energy and is, you know, hearing this woman screaming and sees visions of this woman and kind of go Mostly manifestation and it popularized the idea of residual hauntings and how like that imprints on the area that you're in instead you know so those specifically like definitely are influences here and the funny thing is Carpenter actually hired Neil to write the first draft of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch hell yeah <laughs> personal favorite and I know I mentioned it on that episode um, most of which was discarded so Neil was like not too enthused with Carpenter that he had so many of his works alluded to in this. Right. But all of the Nigel Neal stuff, Lovecraft's whole like outer gods ideas, also like a huge inspiration. There's
0: just so much going on there. And then on top of it, it's all still bananas. And getting back to that whole like faith and science kind of meeting in insane ways that you had brought up, Colin, was the one scene that really popped out in my head, which was actually just a great scene I think even out of the context of this movie and out of the context of horror even. You have the priest and the professor and the priest is distraught when he's learning all the stuff of like, Jesus was an alien and he fought like the goop monster Satan that was buried by the anti-god in the desert. The priest is realizing like the Brotherhood of Sleep and the church like lied about this and kept it under wraps. That's such a good fucking name too. Yeah, Brotherhood of Sleep is amazing. Uh, Everything is wrong. And then the professor who is technically like maybe the skeptic of the two points out that no, everything you believe is still essentially correct it's just not in the way you thought it was it's not like the man who controls the universe type of way and i love that it's the man of science pointing out that like no your faith is not necessarily wrong in this situation And, like, kind of helps him get through, like, his crisis of faith, basically, for lack of better terms. And I really, really like that. It's that ant thing. I can't remember what
1: movie discusses it, but it's, it's that ant thing of if you are an ant, you can only see so far down the road, right? But then if you are a bird, you can see much farther because you just have that higher viewpoint of it. So it's the same thing. It's just going from, like, your earthbound, very narrow human understanding of the way things are and the way reality is and then all of a sudden getting a 30,000 foot view of no no no, this is what it actually is and just not being able to like comprehend that on a very base level and like you said it's, it's the same essential thing you're just seeing all of the picture now
0: and it's just hard to take it in on like a base level I think it was last podcast who described like what an alien abduction probably is is like think of like people in helicopters darting a bear picking up the bear after it's been darted tagging it and then re-releasing it what the fuck do you think that bear is going to tell the other bears like yeah (laughs) how can how do you describe that but yeah that's very much kind of like along those same lines and I love 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 about this movie that it it writes in the whole idea of the supernova 1987 a thing that actually happened that scientists were all like studying and at the time I guess it was all over the news and incorporated into the film as not only is it the thing with a connection to quantum physics but aka it's also a herald to the awakening of Satan that basically is the implication here Yeah, (laughs) and for as much exposition dumps that this movie has at the same time it doesn't necessarily treat its audience like they're dumb it does leave a lot of stuff not outright explained but it's implied that the supernova is tied to Satan's awakening but it's never outright stated that well that's what Carpenter's always been good at is just a lot of visual storytelling and a lot of show
1: dumb don't tell especially those ants jesus yeah the ants the eclipse like all of these like tick down time clock kind of things that like you know something's coming like the, all those little bits and pieces are leading to something
2: yeah yeah that's probably my favorite thing about this movie and movies like it and it's something i think i you know i try to take away in my own stuff is it doesn't treat the audience as, as if they're stupid yeah watching this movie you have to accept that your understanding of it. The, the reality you create, honestly, about while watching this movie will inform what you take away from this movie. And two people can get very, very different movies out of this. You can see very different things. And I think the same person can get different things out of this movie when they watch it at different points in their life. Because I remember watching it and having a very different takeaway from it than I do now when I watch it. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting that people could watch this movie. And I know. people can watch this movie and have a hopeful ending we can talk about the ending at some point and say well that has a hopeful ending (laughs) that ending is in no way hopeful no (laughs) yeah not at all it is not hopeful but i remember watching it saying oh i know what happens now and it's that's nice (laughs) and it's not it's awful
0: yeah it's kind of interesting too because this does feel a little bit different than like the couple of carpenter movies that we've done and i've seen halloween and i've seen escape from new york as well and this still feels very different in tone but something that makes a lot more sense in my head is that carpenter himself was kind of inspired by dario argento going back to italian horror he was inspired by dario argento's specifically inferno film and the thing he liked was how kind of free form it was and like kind of how there was Nightmare Logic. Now, this movie doesn't go straight up bananas Nightmare Logic like some Italian horror does, but it does have a dreamlike nature to it at certain points to the point where one of the major plot points is dreaming yeah. and like literally getting beamed Tachyon a message from the future like through your dreams. Like that's some wild concepts. But yeah, I, I just find that fascinating that the science he was into at the time as well as this Argento movie were, were major inspirations.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely has that sort of gates of hell type yeah. feel to me. I can't remember the other movies in that trilogy. We've covered the Beyond a couple of episodes Yeah, well, back. okay, so the Beyond, yeah, it feels like those movies. I mean, maybe not as gory. Yeah. <laughs> but it definitely has that feel.
1: Yeah. And going back to, like, not treating the audience dumb, one thing I do love about this movie, and this is something that I've mentioned before, I love movies about people who are good at their jobs.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and you get
1: the sense that all of these people are professionals. These are a lot of, like, grad students, grant but they all know what they're doing they like yeah. have their gear they're doing their studies they're figuring this shit out I think where this movie would have made a mistake and lots of other movies would have done this instead of just having these people speak to each other as peer professionals and you as an audience member just have to follow along I think a lesser movie would have oh well, we gotta document this we gotta have a camera crew we gotta have a reporter we gotta have somebody here as an audience surrogate that we yeah. can explain and break off all this stuff down to there's going to be the moment where the reporter says, Well, hold on, hold on, tachyons, what is that? You know, and you have to have this whole explanation
0: of, like, okay, <laughs> here's, whatever this here's is. a PowerPoint, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I think a lesser movie would bend over backwards to have those audience surrogates there, and that's one thing I enjoy is that there is none of that.
0: A lesser movie would either also left it completely unexplained as to why this priest calls all these people there and they just show up, or another way of doing it that would be kind of lesser would be. If they over explain like why, like if the priest literally like had a scene where he like looked at the cameras, just like, I need to get scientists involved to solve this Satan thing before he reawakens. It's never outright said that way. But again, going back to him showing enough and implying enough, the priest has no idea how to handle this. The guy who was in charge of handling it died unexpectedly before he could meet with the church leadership. Yeah. And so the priest only fallback is I need to turn to science, all of us together to like explain what this goop Satan is and how do we keep keep it contained, or get rid of it, or whatever. And I like that the movie doesn't outright spell that out to you, despite a lot of other stuff it does say. And, you know, as much as there are exposition dumps and, like, classroom scenes and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about in the past, Aaron, that make us roll our eyes, it never felt like it was too much of that. Well, that whole opening 15 minutes, which this is, like, a long credits movie. The credit Uh, sequence,
2: yeah. They go,
1: like, the first 10 minutes of the movie before the credits are done, but yeah, that first 10 to 15 minutes is so fucking good, because... You're told everything you essentially need to know about the premise, who the characters are, and what the kind of general themes are going to be. You know, you have Victor Wong literally explaining the whole idea of what our perception of reality is may not be true. The idea of faith versus science. You're seeing, again, like all the impending signs of something is about to happen. You are learning about Brian and Catherine and like kind of how he has a thing for her and pursues that. Like that all happens in the first few few minutes. Yeah, while the credits are rolling. Yeah, it's impeccable filmmaking that is really, really difficult to pull off.
2: Yeah, as I watched I was like, I wish all the credit sequences were like this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, you talk about there's no window character. Yeah. Really the priest is about as close as we get. Donald Pleasance is about as close as we get to a window character. Because he's the guy who doesn't understand what these folks are doing. Yeah. And what's interesting is they never even name him. Yeah. Yeah. He is priest. Yeah. He's just the English priest, you know. It's that's it. I like the cheeky
1: in joke that Carpenter has, which is he has said since his name is Father Loomis. Right? <laughs> okay, Carpenter. And you know, he was maybe Loomis's Yeah, yeah exactly, like his his brother. Like that's just kind of his throwaway headcanon kind of thing. You and
0: David Lynch should go on a comedy tour together. Yeah. Well, and something else too that I like is that yes, it's the priest, but it's not like the tropey priest of either like going back to like something you mentioned earlier, Aaron, the badass seen some shit priest or like the alcoholic seen some shit priest like we get in the fog. It's very much more of just this priest who seems like he wants to do the right thing is just very much caught in this situation he is absolutely not prepared for. Yeah. Pleasance
1: is playing a little bit big but I think that's Pleasance. I mean that's kind of why you go to Pleasance. And on the other side of that you know I think that works because you have this entire crew of other scientists who are all completely grounded and they are all completely level-headed you know i guess you could say dennis dunn is you know the comedy relief and air quotes but they are all very grounded and that kind of creates a good juxtaposition to like grit against each other
0: this movie definitely though did set it up to where like okay about 80 to 90 percent of y'all are not making it out of this alive oh, like, totally, <laughs> you totally, born victims on screen yeah, here.
1: when you meet that many people you know that they're basically all fodder and i love that scene where like a bunch of them are standing around in like the stairwell and they're all just like oh yeah my name's Clint uh, I'm here with microbiology oh my name's Dave I'm here with astrology and you're just like you're dead you're dead you're dead
0: you're dead, dead. No, you're dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I pretty much nailed everyone who was gonna die and everyone who would live too when I was watching it I was just like okay I've seen enough of this stuff now that I, like I can point it out kind of going back to performances it was great seeing Victor Wong again because what the last movie we saw yeah, in then I love him. was Tremors yeah and I did not know that Lisa Blount had passed away back in like twenty. 20- Ten, so rest in peace. Yeah. But uh she was great in this. Honestly, I didn't ha- like. I thought all the performances were pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: all all the side characters are all solid. Yeah. You know, like I'm not the biggest Jameson Parker fan from Simon and Simon fame. I wish that maybe there had been somebody a little more well known in that leading role to kind of make you
2: care about him. Did he strike you as the guy who decided late in life to pursue his collegiate career? Because yeah, I don't know yeah. why he just yeah. He seemed so much older than everybody else yeah, yeah. Uh, than all the other students as i'm watching i was like man that guy is like the 35 to 40 year old who's in my college class you know yeah
1: <laughs> totally and he's kind of a drip in the movie a little bit and it does strike me now watching it older. He's a little bit of nice guy TM there at the beginning. The way that he kind of pursues Catherine. But that element of the movie kind of goes by so quick. But it is wild how by the end her sacrifice ultimately is the thing that just like has pushed him over the edge to the point where he's trying to conjure up the anti-god again to maybe bring her back. That whole relationship kind of jumps real quick quick over the course of the movie and that might be
0: the weakest element of the movie but it's not something that the movie like dwells on thankfully. That's kind of what you were thinking since you brought up the ending let's kind of go here. So the thing I took from the ending was probably a little bit of that as well but the big thing I focused on was you finally see the entire dream sequence of the message from the future that's being beamed to them. When you see it it's implied that the anti-god is released and it's leaving the church um, and it's appearing outside the church and then it's Lisa Blount's character And what I took that as from that ending is that that message is still being sent out to him and he's still receiving it. Which means that's still going to happen in 1999. Yeah. And now it's going to be Lisa Blount, who is the host for the anti-god. Yeah. Because she's the one who got stuck in the dimension. That's how I thought it ended.
1: Back to Cullen's mention earlier of
0: this is yeah. not a happy
2: ending. What are y'all seeing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not, I mean, I remember watching it, you know, in my younger days. And people say, oh, maybe she's still alive and he can rescue her. But that's not what it's about. Nah. It's about he wants to rescue her. He thinks he can rescue her, but the truth of the matter is the warning that they send him at the end with her in the place of the misshapen figure... You know, the dream comes back and it's the misshapen figure. It's the same actor who played... I can't remember the character's name, who cuts his own throat with a piece of wood. Calder. 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 So it's the same actor that's in that scene. Is—is who they used as that misshapen figure. And then they send that message back to him, to Brian, and it's her and really that warning is what spurs him to oh I'm gonna I gotta see if I can find her you know I gotta try to set her (laughs) free because he's that guy and then that also implies what if he is the one who
0: gets her to reappear in 1999 because like he just continues to like pursue this Yeah. and uh, by the way one of the creepiest moments of this movie was when Calder got possessed and was sort of trying to fight back I guess and he starts singing Amazing Grace and like doing that fucking laugh that was like some pretty bone chilling shit in this movie I like how half of them get fully taken
1: over when the goop initially hits
2: the radiologist is how they keep referring to
0: (laughs) I think it might be Kelly is it Kelly Susan yeah when when it initially hits her glasses off by the way baby she's like no more nerd girl now I'm Satan girl (laughs) yeah my eyes are fixed now take these off we don't need eyes where we're going (laughs) we don't need (laughs) eyes to see
1: (laughs) her and Lisa like they are completely taken over but seeing Calder and Peter Jason's character, uh, Doctor Leahy, the idea of the two of them knowing they're possessed and there's still being like some level of humanity underneath that that's trying to fight that is super interesting.
2: I feel like that's to me is one of the chilling moments with that character, Doctor Leahy. He has this look of pure horror on his own face when yeah. he's getting ready to spit at uh, at one of. The, I mean, like he gets up and he has this almost this look of, like he's getting. Ready ready to scream but he's possessed and to me that was really kind of chilling for that character yeah
1: I listened to the director's commentary that's on the Scream Factory Blu-ray and most of it is just John Carpenter like doing his thing and like yeah movies today suck Uh, mostly play video games and go to you know Lakers games but he's doing the commentary with Peter Jason and so there's a lot of interesting back and forth between them about things that happen and stuff like that and Peter Jason specifically said he talked to David Warner um, another like legendary horror actor about what's something that you've always wanted to play and never have had a chance to. David Warner said, somebody who's dead, who comes back to life but it hurts. And that's pretty much exactly like what Peter Jason's yeah. doing in that role where like you can tell he is under some kind of pain there and trying to fight back. I do also like too, with this team, kind of going back to the whole science versus faith thing, there seems to be a pretty like 50-50 split amongst the team who believes this and knows something is going on that they have to figure out. And then the other people like Wyndham, for instance, who's like, fuck this man, I'm getting out of here. And then he gets <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) you know stabbed with garden shears that whole aspect too like when shit is so fundamentally bad that the skeptics start to come around and then the crazy religious people also start to kind of level out and sound more reasonable like when those two kind of bottom out at like a 50-50 place that to me is always an interesting dynamic with ensemble groups like this because that creates a lot of friction between those characters
0: and with the exception of Wyndham like even the people who are more skeptical are still too fascinated by like what exactly the green goop is so they want to keep exploring that even if they think it's all bunk which by the way speaking of like other creepy scenes one of my favorite scenes in this movie is that part where like Wyndham's at the window (laughs) I've got a message for you and you're not gonna like it pray for (laughs) death and then like his head falls back I've
2: got a message for you and you're not going to like it
1: look at his chest
2: Ready for death
1: pray for death. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, no, there's a there's so many great, weird moments yeah. that don't have to make sense necessarily in the reality of this movie. And some of them are so subtle. You know, I love when the priest is getting ready to go inside and the homeless lady comes up to him and says, you know, I'm so glad you're reopening the church. In a distorted voice, too. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly, just slightly yeah. distorted. It's just like, I'm so glad you're reopening the church. And when you think about it they're all going in there to worship at you know the altar of science yeah. and I just think that it's such an interesting bit and then uh one of my favorite creepy moments in the movie is also my least leads to my least favorite moment in the movie and there's the scene where Calder goes in and Lisa is typing and she's <laughs> just <laughs> typing nonstop you know just and he goes up and sees what she's typing and it's uh you know you will not be saved by the son of God you will not be saved by the god plutonium which is my I love that line is so good. And, and yes. I think that's a super chilling moment. The thing I don't like about that scene is, it's my least favorite part of the movie, is where she types in fact, you will not be saved at all, because it just doesn't seem to fit in everything else. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, the anti-god is being funny here. He's trying to be witty. Yeah. That's the only piece of the movie that I don't necessarily love.
1: That's the Freddy's dead moment of you open the giant yeah. map and it says you're
0: fucked. Yeah. Hey, I, lo- I <laughs> yeah. love that moment in Freddy's dead, by the way. Yeah, but it works in the freddy's dead <laughs> yeah.
2: universe
0: i mean that whole movie <laughs> yeah is cuckoo bananas but um yeah
1: you mentioned it earlier derek but i think to me like by far the creepiest thing in this movie is the tachyon message being broadcast to all of their psyches during sleep That entire notion is so
0: creepy to me, and it has that video effect where it's muffled and everything. The way that he
1: like chooses to actually visualize that, where he did shoot that very low-fi video footage on video and then re-recorded it while playing it off a television screen Um, and it has that extra weird layer of disconnect and that's Carpenter's narration over the video as well which weirdly enough was sampled in DJ Shadow's album introducing yeah this
0: is not a dream not a dream yeah Yeah, I remember seeing the movie and being like oh that's where that came from huh okay
1: that whole idea is like super intriguing to me and that's kind of something that again connects back to Stone Tape and the road and even come true that I talked about earlier there's like this weird kind of shared dream like subconscious level thing that everybody's innately sharing like that entire aspect is terrifying to me
0: that is one of those exposition scenes where they finally like figure out that this dream is possibly a message from the future where like that exposition of explaining that I actually did enjoy if you want to keep some level of coherence to this plot you need that to like put those two into together and how these characters actually find meaning in that dream that they're all sharing. Yeah. Another goofy thing actually, it goes back to the computer thing because with the god plutonium was great because that implies you can't even nuke the anti-god nothing would work against it. But then is it either before she types all that or after she types all that where she just goes I live, I live, I live, I live. Like she's Jack Torrance. That's what he walks into watching her type up. That was another moment where I was like what you were saying Colin with that other line that she types out. That was a little bit okay all right we don't necessarily
2: need that but all right it's a little cheese it was a little cheese yeah i forgive the i live i live i live because it led me to the god plutonium which i think is such a great turn of phrase yes the god plutonium is top notch some of the cool stuff about the movie to me and maybe i read into it too much but there's you know there's lots of little bits and pieces because the character who becomes the the embodiment of Of the Prince of Darkness. Um, What's her name? Is it Kelly? Kelly, Yeah. yeah. Kelly. It's interesting to me. And I only assume it's intended. Who knows if it is or not? I remember being in creative writing classes, and people would say, "Oh yes, I see what you did here. You were really <laughs> infusing the theme." And you're like, "No, that's just a guy getting chopped in half. It's no theme." <laughs> you know, again, people read what they want to into these things. Early in the movie, she's looking at the container, uh, which I think is such a great prop. Totally. Wouldn't it be awesome to oh, have like yeah. that container in your room, like with a light and the the swirling liquid? It's such a cool prop. Hearing them talk about it behind the scenes, it's
1: sounded a lot like Bruce the Shark from Jaws where it was a giant pain in the ass to manage and it constantly broke like it was impossible to get to work yeah, apparently it <laughs> weighed like 1500 pounds and actually had swirling goop on the inside there were like big acrylic paddles to like move it around and I was thinking it was just velour sheets and green lighting but no there was
2: really liquid in it <laughs> But it's, it's interesting to me is she's the first one in, there's a scene where they're all looking at it she says to everybody else why hasn't anybody you open this thing yeah and they said well you can't and she goes no no if we want to open it we can open it and then she turns she hits her arm on something and immediately after that okay she is marked as the embodiment of evil and I think it's cool because it's her moment of curiosity about things that are forbidden that opens it up that she becomes the uh, embodiment of the prince of darkness I
0: don't think that's reading too much into it at all I think that is very purposeful so kind of tied into that we've talked about how these characters are good at their jobs right there is a little bit still of like that classic horror trope of just you aren't sensing something's off here a little too late when she shows her bruise to her and the bruise is a perfect symbol of like <laughs> <laughs> it's the blue oyster cult bruise yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 it's the perfect symbol of the antichrist but then also too just even early on where all the homeless people are like staring at them from across the street and it's not just three of them it's fucking 20 of them from that alley yeah. surrounding the church and all of them are just like huh they're all acting weird Ugh, whatever must just be like something going on with the homeless population in this area. Bunch of crazy homeless people. And they're all just standing there staring at him menacingly. Alice Cooper is fucking looking like Alice Cooper. He's pure white. Except his
1: hands, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Stunt casting Alice Cooper is fun. Like, he doesn't have any lines, which I think is probably for the best. Probably for the best, yeah. Just him there as a presence and like you have that meta connection of him as this evil dude, you know. (laughs) He gets to use that bicycle prop. Is
2: it the first First death by bicycle stabbing in the film <laughs> history?
0: By bicycle stabbing, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the device that the thing is attached to, I think it's actually an impaling device from one of Alice Cooper's past stage shows. It is. Yeah,
2: I remember reading that. Yeah. That's fucking great. And this is again, this is I'm probably reading more into it than I should, but that's okay. That's part of the fun of movies, right? Dennis Dunn's character is trapped in the closet when Kelly is is in the middle of her transformation, and I think it's interesting because at the beginning of the movie Walter is talking to Catherine about Schrodinger's cat yeah. he's like when you're in the box the cat doesn't exist you know and, and until the cat is seen it's in a state between life and death and he's in that closet and the, the possessed people are just standing there completely still and he peeks out at a moment and that's when the thing looks at him and that's when the monsters start you know the possessed people start trying to get him and come in at him and I think that's interesting Is like you're in that closet you're safe you're a state between life and death they can't see yeah. you let it be <laughs> let it be walter yeah. don't uh, show yourself
0: well and i love kelly's whole transformation too is great and i love that it's through walter's eye because he's the only one trapped in that room and like you get the sense that the two possessed that are in there with him could easily just break open that door and kill him yeah but they almost just want him to watch her transformation because he is getting more creeped yeah. out by it. Yeah. it's
1: constantly just like hey
0: guys uh y'all want to hurry up she's getting real fucking gross and i love how the transformation starts with her almost being pregnant and then it goes back down and literally like manifests through her skin and like her skin starts peeling off and she's like that bloody zombie thing and yet she still has the striking blonde hair that's like still completely intact. Yeah, it's
2: so bizarre.
0: I love that juxtaposition of like gross blood zombie demon and then the perfect blonde hair. Oh yeah. So as far as uh, effects go, I found this weird
1: tidbit that like sent me down a rabbit hole for a hot minute. So Wyndham, again, the guy who's like like, you know, covered with bugs, gets stabbed by the homeless lady, and then delivers the creepy message and then falls apart into bugs. He is mostly known as a visual effects supervisor. He has done, like, all kinds of other roles, but Robert Grasmere is mostly known as a visual effects supervisor, and he did this movie, he did Running Man, Alien Nation, Predator 2, Toys, which is a fucking nightmare movie, (laughs) Demolition Man, (laughs) Bone Collector, and Mothman Prophecies, but he is also the writer of all entries in this particular franchise Baby geniuses. Wow. (laughs) What a fucking wild... Sure, this guy's had a career.
0: So do you think he follows the whole idea that, of course, the visual effects guy is going to have the coolest death where, like, his head falls off and bugs go everywhere?
1: Totally. Yeah, yeah. If you're the visual effects guy, of course, especially if you're in the movie. Yeah. As far as, like, other visual effects go, like, the mirror effect is pretty fucking cool at the end. The whole, like, you know, liquid mirror wall portal kind of thing.
2: Father, come to free... To me, that was the most (laughs) exposition-y stuff. I was like, okay, I get it. You don't need to say father. I get it. I know what's coming out there. I see the big misshapen hand reaching back to you. It's okay.
1: Apparently, they drained mercury from the dolly and the crane hydraulics to do that effect. And then it's just a fake puppet hand because obviously nobody's going to stick their hand in all that mercury. So that's why it does look kind of goofy seeing this floaty rubber hand moving through it but that's definitely something that there's no way with all the safety shit that goes into making movies there is absolutely no way that you could get away with that today no we need to do this on set day of visual effect i don't know Empty all the mercury out of the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> something else that I think is interesting about this movie because, you know, a lot of Carpenter's stuff has been remade yeah. and basically none of it works. But something that fundamentally wouldn't work about this movie today is you would have to explain around cell phones and Wi-Fi
0: all of that other stuff you know okay yeah sure there's like this weird supernatural most people would just throw in a line like my cell phone isn't working all of a sudden
2: Uh, our internet isn't working yeah what happened to all the reception as I rewatched it for this one of the first things I said to myself was that cell phones were the worst thing that ever happened to horror fiction in general because yeah I, I think if they had had cell phones well that just ruins you know Uh, you know also let me watch a youtube video on quantum mechanics real quick yeah that's all about we're gonna
1: live stream this on instagram right now we're gonna open the container guys
2: you know you could just see them taking selfies in front of the container
0: of of goop oh god you're absolutely right and then like (laughs) when they post the selfie they check later and their face are distorted like in the picture or something yeah yeah totally so
1: weird like alternate shit on the scream factory blu-ray which there is now a four. 4K release of this, which I'm I'm like, uh, my physical media ass is like wanting to pull the trigger on it, but like I already own a copy. There is a re-edited opening that was made specifically for the television broadcast of this. And that's not unusual. There's a weird history of TV edits for movies that include bits and pieces of scenes that weren't in the original cut. You know, like it always fucked me up growing up that I grew up watching the Goonies recorded off Disney Channel with the scene with the octopus uh, octopus, and then learning later like that was never there, right? Halloween, same exact thing. There was a TV edit of Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 that trimmed some scenes and added some new stuff. So this movie also has a weird re-edited opening. It is 90% the same stuff, just edited and trimmed to speed it up it goes from like nine minutes to six minutes but the wild bit is you know right after it like introduces the characters in the college and you have victor wong's first kind of spiel explaining everything you see jameson parker in his apartment goes to sleep and then it goes willy 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 and then it cuts to the old priest dying and it kind of changes the entire tone of the movie when you maybe have that weird edit there and that weird juxtaposition of those two scenes because then you can infer is all of this just in his dream right now? Is everything that's happening like in his head? And it's just that entire cop-out, right?
0: I'm glad that didn't go that way but that is interesting that there is a cut like that of this movie.
1: But imagine how different that would have been to your perception of this movie had you just seen this on
2: television Yeah, Guys, your perception breaks down at the subatomic level (laughs) Where fundamental evil lives, yeah. So yeah, like, what a wild different thing. That's pretty interesting There's something I was thinking about it, so the end of the movie is almost as if, okay, we stopped the Prince of Darkness from bringing the anti-God across, but we didn't really do anything, Yeah, you know, we didn't stop anything. We delayed it. Because A.J. Simon's gonna bring the evil or across pretty soon anyway. I think it's cool because uh, the priest comes around to this way of thinking. He's like, everything we learned is a lie. It's all, not, none of it's true. You know, we've been lying to people for thousands of years. And he's come to that. But then at the end, when they're wheeling him away on the gurney, he looks over at Barack and he's like, we did it. We stopped it. And it's almost like his faith has completely been restored. He's yeah. completely forgotten his doubt. Yeah. And I feel like that's a statement on, this is why it's going to happen again. Because you just can't learn. You know, it's like you. nobody learned it. You didn't learn anything. Yeah. You learn the things that we've been teaching people have been false. And yet at the end, you're so relieved and you're right back to God bless everyone. It's all right. It's okay, everybody. Well, yeah. it's interesting because
0: <laughs> that scene where he's trapped in the room where she's reaching through the mirror to pull the Antigot in, he has that axe and he's hesitating and he starts praying again. It's like he's falling back into that old comfort habit when faced with this. And to his credit, when like she tackles possessed Kelly with the Prince of Darkness into the mirror and does the sacrifice the way he throws that axe is absolutely absurd ridiculous to the point where there's absolutely no way he'd be able to (laughs) shatter the mirror but yeah I do agree with you I think yeah you may have won the battle in this instance but you're acting like you won the war and yeah you're right at the very end his faith is restored but his faith is restored not in a good way it's back to the
2: like being in denial again yeah and I think that's a great place to land on with a movie about basically about the collapse of society. Because that's really what it is. These are all super people who are great at their jobs. They are on target. They know what's going on in the world. They are scientists. And they look out at those homeless people and they're like, you know, these poor bastards. Look at these poor saps. And the homeless people are gathering furniture up around the church to block them in. Yeah. And there's this great scene where the scientists resort to, how are we going to save ourselves? Let's put furniture up against <laughs> the door. <laughs> yeah. And they're just, basically, they've fallen into the same thing at these uh, you know the dregs quote unquote of society are you know doing they're doing the exact same things because everything's collapsing inside that church well and the
0: irony of it is like after everything's said and done most of the scientists are dead and the homeless just
2: wander off they're like oh no longer possessed i guess like totally fine look science starts to fail when demons spit in your mouth i'm telling you (laughs) i mean as soon as (laughs) as soon as a demon spits in your mouth the things you think you know start going right out the window <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. last thing we got to talk about though is the soundtrack absolutely True. Yeah. yeah we did not talk about the soundtrack to this movie which is amazing
0: yeah it's a carpenter movie this is
1: one of his more underrated scores in my opinion it doesn't have as strong of a definite theme right. but i think the overall score is super strong
2: Doesn't it remind you guys a little bit of They Live? Yes. I mean, doesn't it seem... Oddly. Th- there's a lot of similarities. Yeah.
0: To the point, like, not only with the soundtrack, but, like, with where the churches in this area of Los Angeles. Right. This really felt like this was happening across town in another part of Los Angeles. From They Live? Yeah, They Live was happening, like... <laughs> there's
2: a box of sunglasses.
0: Yeah. 30 minutes away, yeah.
2: Victor Wong's character comes out with a box of sunglasses <laughs> at
0: the yeah. end. It's a shared universe, yeah. You
2: put
1: it on, and the tank just says, eat it, McDonald's
0: it says you're fucked like the Freddy's dead map (laughs) the thing with this soundtrack though is while it does have all like the signature Carpenter synth wave and all that there is a little bit of that church choirness that you would think in a general possession movie or like anything that involves demonic nature so there is a little bit of a difference to it that sets it apart from like something like They Live but yeah I would agree like this is an underrated soundtrack for Carpenter and that's saying something
2: yeah it's one of my favorites for me it really stands out as one one of my favorite Carpenter movie soundtracks oh yeah absolutely yeah
0: and and again just like kind of going back to from the stuff i've watched through this podcast and outside of this podcast from carpenter i don't know if y'all would agree with me but i kind of feel like this is his most underrated movie or at least one of them
2: it's one of it's super underrated i think the same thing about in the mouth of madness i think is a just such a cool movie well he was on a hell of a run too right around this movie he had just put
0: out big trouble in little china then this and then he follows this up with they live yeah this was like
1: his return to horror after years of being away from it and trying to do other stuff right yeah so this was definitely like a huge step back into that world because
0: Starman was a what a romance movie like a science fiction romance yeah it's like a sci-fi yeah. romance kind of drama yeah. yeah
1: you know and unfortunately you know it, it wouldn't be too much longer before we then bounce into stuff like memoirs of an invisible man which like that movie's a movie for literally nobody <laughs> that's like such a strange like what is this kind of thing is it chevy chase in that movie yeah yeah what? Yeah. But then we get into that good run of like in the mouth of madness, vampires, and look, I, I will go to bat for Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> I will totally go to bat for that movie because it's at least fun. So, yeah, like, he's, he's still got some other good stuff in the 90s for sure, but I think this is one that it's just kind of low-key. Once you hear the premise, you're yeah. like, okay, what is this? But on the outside, it does just kind of look like a possession movie because you just see
0: Donald Pleasance with, like, a crucifix, and that's kind of the marketing, you know? Yeah. And then you enter that room where the goop is, and it's, like, surrounded in crosses, like, trying to contain it. it kind of going back to, like, his weird run uh in the 90s especially in into the early 2000s and i have not watched it in like over a decade so you know don't give me shit for saying this but i remember like even kind of digging village of the damned when i saw it on
2: sci-fi actually i was just thinking of village of the damned yeah see i saw all those in theater i definitely saw village of the damned in the theater i definitely definitely saw in the mouth of madness in the theater and i saw escape from la in the theater so right around that time you know when those movies were coming. I mean, I was seeing all those in the movie theater. Which is probably why In the Mouth of Madness, for me, ranks so high on my Carpenter movie list. It was such a perfect movie at that time, and the experience of seeing it.
1: Yeah, that's definitely one that I'm wanting us to get around to in the relatively near future. Like, as much as Halloween is one that everybody's been like, Oh, what are you going to do Halloween? In my head, I'm like, man, what are we going to do fucking In the Mouth of Madness? Or, like, Lord of Illusions, or, like, some weird 90s shit like that is
0: what I want to get into. Oh, and don't get me wrong, we will do Halloween eventually, Yeah. it's an obvious one. Yeah, stuff like Prince of Darkness is the shit I've been wanting to hit first, Yeah, and I'm glad we
2: are. It's just such a strange, it's just not a movie that anyone expects. It is nothing like what you could expect. It's uh, It's such an unusual, bizarre movie. Again, it ranks very high in my Carpenter movies. Maybe I should sit down and rank on all of my favorite Carpenter movies sometime.
1: Hell yeah. Alright, cool cool. I guess uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up. You have given us more than a enough. enough time
0: yes thank you thank you this is kind of like a dream come true we are very very thankful this is a dream come true for every minute that you have been on with us well i appreciate you guys having
1: me That said, do you have anything coming up soon that you want to
0: plug?
2: Yeah, so guys, this is not a dream. I am broadcasting to you from the year 2021, April of 2021, and I'm wanting to tell you all that uh, I have a couple books coming out. hell yeah <laughs> it's not so grim well it's hey not so grim. at the time
0: that this episode actually drops they will be out so please check these out this will be some
1: backwards tachyon bullshit yeah because yeah. this will be out a little bit later
2: you never know with this tachyon business uh but no in, in april so they will be out by the time this comes out phantom in this on the scan has come out from aftershock and phantom on the scan is sort of my scanners Hell yeah. It's a five-issue horror, a psychic horror story that I think, if you like things like Scanners, Firestarter, Carrie, any of those types of stories, Phantom on the Scan is going to be right up your alley. Around the same time, Shadow Man number one will have come out from Valiant Comics. Now, Shadow Man, he's a superhero in the Valiant universe, but forget all that. Don't worry about him being a superhero. Shadow Man is one of the freakiest horror comics I've ever written. It's got a lot of crazy Clive Barker-ish, Thomas Lagote-ish horror infused into every issue of Shadow Man. If you've never read a Shadow Man comic, you can pick this up and enjoy it, but it's going to be a really messed up comic, and it's awesome. I'm going
0: to add that to my list, because Valiant is that one area of comics that I have just, like, not touched at all for some reason. I just haven't checked out anything from Valiant, but I will have to, like, add this.
2: Yeah, if you're into horror at all, Shadow Man's for you. You know, the Valiant comics, they have this thing called the Dead Side, which is the dark reflection of our world, and Shadow Man. Man is sort of the guy who protects us from anything that might bleed through into our world. He's just sort of an average, everyday guy. He just has superpowers and can punch demons in the face. Hell yeah. But th- he, <laughs> he deals with some really messed up things. And since uh, since they are already out, you can definitely get them at your comic shop. In May 2021, <laughs> also from Aftershock is a book called Eden that uh, I'm very excited about. It's a horror romance it's one shot, one book. It's all you need—the complete stories in one issue. Um, and it's about sort of a, a tattoo artist who uh, is kind of in a in a funk. He's kind of in a rut, and he's full of guilt and for various reasons. And this woman comes into the tattoo parlor and gets a tattoo, and they have an instant connection. And she starts coming back, and the tattoos are gone. And every time she comes back, the tattoo she's just gotten has vanished and there's sort of a mystery about where these ta- what's happening to these tattoos and Eden and this this tattoo artist strike up sort of a romance but then it goes into some extremely dark horrible places it's a very personal story for me but it's a very very, uh, it's definitely a love story, but it's a love story with a Prince of Darkness like awful ending, I guess. <laughs> awesome, excellent. I would say definitely keep an eye on those. And I've got tons of books coming out, tons of creator own stuff. Most of that creator own stuff is in the realm of horror. I have another book in June. You guys were talking about Bone Parish earlier. I've got a book coming out called Basilisk from Boom Entertainment that starts in June. Which is with the same artist who drew Bone Parish. Oh, nice. Nice. Jonas Scarfe. And it's about these five individuals who wander down from the mountains and basically just decimate a small town they kill everyone in the town and each of them seems to have a power that's connected to one of the the five senses and it's a story of revenge about this you know this woman who wants to get revenge on these five godlike beings who can kill you with a look or with a touch or kill you with the sense of smell or the sense of taste and that's coming out in june but if you follow my uh, you know me on Twitter, which is at Cullen Bun, or you follow my website, which is CullenBunn.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter. You keep track of all these horror books, and there are a lot of great horror comics on the horizon. Hell yeah. Yes,
0: awesome. And again, listeners, if, if we haven't made it clear to you, please go check out his past work. You've worked with pretty much everybody at this point, Cullen, at one point or another. I have. But like, please check out his work from his creator-owned stuff involved in horror, and hell, even his stuff like his work on Venom and Magneto, it's all good shit. God, we didn't even talk about that I'll I loved magneto yeah yeah yeah, and like it's all good shit even in the stuff where you're working with like marvel or dc owned characters you always inject a bit of horror into it that's kind of why i liked absolutely your yeah. uh run on venom because i think venom is ripe for like having horror be an element to that character but yes please go check out all his stuff
1: hell yeah all right well that is gonna be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with your boy Mansfield the movie Monster Fiend and then my cowardly co-host Derek as always you can find us on all the socials at Watch If You Dare, Um, of course we are on all the podcatchers at this point, follow us there please rate and review as well, keep an eye out at all of your uh, local comic book shops and haunts for uh, stickers, business cards etc that might just be a way for us to uh, spread the show a little bit. So keep an eye out for our logo. And then beyond that, big thanks as always to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our bumps at the beginning and the ends of every episode. So you can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp under Party Gator or Opossums or any of the other linked
0: bands that he is associated with. Oh, well, speaking of music, I did add a couple tracks from Carpenter, specifically Lost Themes 3, to our Spotify music playlist. Cool. Cool. That we have pinned to our Twitter and linked on our Podbean website. Awesome. Well, with that, hey Aaron, Cullen, did you know that every Sally has an anti-Sally? It's mirror image. It's negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe, as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-Sally, bringing darkness instead of light. Pray for death. <laughs> <laughs>